Great to see you this day. So glad to be with you as we worship our great God together. Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 4. And as you make your way there, if you are new with us, you're a guest. My name is Jordan Johnson. have the joy of serving as our lead pastor and one of our elders here at PVC. And we are delighted if you're here and you're new in the room or you're here and you're new online. Either way, it is a joy to be together centered around the Word of God. You know, talking John's initial challenge there of let us not be few when it comes to serving in the harvest. I think about yesterday, and one way that I just want to commend our body is we had opportunity yesterday morning to serve a family who was uh, had, uh, celebrating the life of someone they had just lost, and we opened this space up for them to to have a celebration service and to have a meal downstairs, and so many moving parts of people jumped in, and at one point as we were kind of getting coffee ready and doing this, I looked to David and said, I feel like we're Nehemiah, and I feel like we're on the wall, and we're just trying to do what God has called us to do, but that is the testimony of the life of this church for many, 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 many years. A multiplied mobilized, massive group of people who seek to live for the glory of God and seek to love in real tangible ways. So God bless you, church. It is a joy to lock shields together in this season of the life of the body at Pleasant Valley Church. Nehemiah 4, title of our sermon today is Kingdom Opposition. I hope you grabbed a worship guide on your way in. On your right side there is our outline for today. Some places, some blanks for you to fill in with the goal of you really engaging the sermon, not just hearing it and it going in one ear and out the other, but you really writing, engaging. And then on the back, our connect group questions, uh, those are there. Our connect groups are starting this week. So we are relaunching our off-campus groups where they're going to discuss not these questions just quite yet, but they're going to have an opening, uh, get to know one another, get to know one another's spiritual heritage around a meal, around fellowship. But as we launch this thing out, friends, this is going to be the path. We're going to come, we're going to hear the Word of God, we're going to interact with these questions, and we're going to gather in groups of 8 to 10, right now 14 in one group, um, and discuss this and seek gospel-centered community with a goal of ongoing spiritual growth and maturation in our Lord Jesus. So Nehemiah chapter 4. If you're new with us, Nehemiah is about a guy named, you guessed it, Nehemiah. God had burdened Nehemiah with a passionate pursuit to address a major problem, not only in his life, but in the greater reality of the people of God, Israel. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah set the stage of what God was doing inside the heart of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had received news that the city of Jerusalem, the walls were still down. 141 years before Nehemiah comes on the scene, God in his sovereign grace and providence had used a rival nation and a rival leader to come and sack the people of God, to overtake them, and ultimately to oppress them. Now, make no mistake about it, that action on the part of our God using that rival nation was His love for His people. That He 
was disciplining the ones that he loved. And because of their spiritual demise and their spiritual rebellion against their God, he did not stand by and watch it happen. He engaged them by graciously bringing this nation to overtake them. Well, Nehemiah knew about all of this. Uh, the prequel to this book, Ezra, and, and in Hebrew, I remind you, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. It's Ezra-Nehemiah. So this is one story. God used Nehemiah to rebuild the physical walls, the physical structure in many ways. Um, he's going to use them in a spiritual way, and he is, but he, God used Ezra to help restore the hearts of the people of God back to their God, and God used Ezra to rebuild the temple, and now the city needs a wall because that wall is going to protect the nation from the brutality of all the other nations, and that is what is so wild about God bringing these walls down and using a nation to do that because those walls are really important for protecting the people of God one day so that Jesus could be born a Jew so that the Jewish nation would not be completely extinct and God used Nehemiah at a really pivotal time in not just biblical history but world history. This stuff right here we're reading, this is in world history books. So this is God writing his story and using his servant to advance his kingdom amidst all the opposition that is going to come their way. Well, the first thing Nehemiah does is what you should always do. Before you panic, you should pray. And in chapter 1, the, the last half of chapter 1, Nehemiah, he prays this really inspiring and really instructive prayer. If you want to learn how to pray, bro, if you want to learn how to pray, sister, go read the back half of Nehemiah 1 and see the chronological reality of how you should approach the Holy One. In chapter 2, Nehemiah now goes before the king, and he asks the unthinkable. Because King Artaxerxes is the one that gave the decree that these walls are not being rebuilt, and now he's going to go back and say, good king, would you redo what you said, and would you let us go back and rebuild the walls that you said should be torn down? And God, by his grace, does the unthinkable. He moves in the heart of that king. Proverbs 21.1 says that God moves a king's heart like streams of water, whichever way he wants. And the king doesn't just grant him the authority to do that. He actually sends him a security entourage to lead him back to Jerusalem. And then last week, chapter 3, there's about 50 people on the squad, 50 people who get a hammer and, based on where they live, begin to reset the seven, wall, the seven gates that these walls will be tied to as the narrative will progress on. And in chapter 4, what you come to is much opposition from the rival kingdoms around Jerusalem, and friends, there is much to glean from these 23 verses that we're going to walk through today. But I got to admit to you, we need God's help to really understand this. So let's go to God and ask for gleaning power. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a dark world that we pilgrim through. And yet you've given us your word as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Oh God, would you use this narrative about Nehemiah and the people he was leading and those who were opposing, would you use all of that to forge Christ-likeness in us, 
Lord, there is some hard truth about to be spoken from this passage. And Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our heart? Would you help us glean things that might lead us to be more faithful, both together and individually? We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, the real key question I want to let this text answer And one of the very reasons I believe that God the Holy Spirit has crafted this chapter through the human author is that it is helping us, the people of God, think through how to approach and how to respond to opposition in our lives, both on an individual level and as the people of God. How do we respond to opposition? The first thing we need is a definition of opposition, though. What is opposition? Glad you asked. Here is my definition of opposition. Opposition is anything or anyone that threatens your perseverance in the faith and our kingdom advancement. Opposition is anything or anyone that is going to hinder your ability to persevere in the faith and collectively as we seek the kingdom of God to advance on earth. When that happens, at any level, you are being opposed. And you need to know how to respond to the opposition that I'm telling you is coming. If it's not here, it's on its way. If you're in the middle of it, look to the Lord. If, if, if it hasn't come, just be patient. Opposition is coming. Notice the first thing that you should do when it comes to you following the will of God for your life is you should, first blank, expect opposition. You should expect opposition. Mark it down. If you are going to make your life count for the kingdom of God, for the advancement of the good name of our God in history, then you will be opposed. Notice verse 1. Now, when Sanballat... Now, Sanballat is a character we got introduced to uh, earlier. He's an agitator. He's a thorn in the side of this work. He, Sambalot, was angry and greatly enraged. Notice what he does. He jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Now, let me remind you, these walls have been down for 141 years. And these these are governors of these rival nations, Sambalot. And they've they've seen this rubble, and they're very threatened. They don't like the fact that these people are coming back and reclaiming their territory. So notice, notice his little buddy. You know, every big talk, big talking mouth always has a buddy, right? Notice Tobias' buddy. Tobias says, yes, what are they building? Notice this little like mama joke, if you will. If a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. It's almost like Sambalat and Tobias are like high-fiving. Man, what did you say? Uh, 
you guys are going to build this back, and if you do it, a little fox is going to come on top of it, and going, the whole thing's going to fall down. So these enemies are jeering, they're mocking, they are not happy about the kingdom of God advancing on earth. And yet, what I want you to know is it has always been this way for the people of God. There is nothing new under the sun, historically or currently. The people in the kingdoms of the world have always pushed back against the kingdom of God advancing on earth. Jesus said, and you should memorize this verse, you should put this on your coffee cup, you should put this on your mirror when you get ready in the morning, you should put this somewhere where you can see it. Jesus said, John 15, 18, if the world hated me, it will hate you too. If the world hated me, or since the world hated me, then it will hate you too. This has been the experience for the church, for the people of God throughout her existence. And to this day, friends, let me remind you, when you get up every morning and you turn on the news, you turn on your podcast or a blog or you go out to Walmart or you go wherever you go, you are going into a tidal wave of narcissism, consumerism, individualism, hypersexuality, and watch this, anti-authoritarianism that is crafted in all kinds of sociological terms and it really at its root is just a rejection to submit to God-given authority. And when you go out into that, if you begin by God's grace to push back up against that, they're going to hate you. They're going to. And the reason they hate you is nothing new because they hated our Savior. One of the ways that you walk in the footsteps of your Savior is to be opposed to that which is beautiful and lovely in the sight of God. And so, if you're going to live for God and for His kingdom on earth, number one, expect, opposite, expect people to write things about you, expect people to get on blogs about you, expect people to gossip about you, expect at work for them to heap up all kinds of jeering, fox-like jokes about you. Expect it. Second of all, engage God in prayer. You don't just expect opposition. As you're going through the opposition, let me be clear, you ain't going to make it if you don't pray. Notice verse 4. Hear, oh, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you, you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Notice, they prayed, and what did they do? I just love that. So we built the wall. They prayed and they got back to work. They prayed and they got back to work. Nehemiah is not distracted by this foolishness. He's not debilitated 
Oh, I can't believe someone would be mean to me. Oh, I can't believe somebody would. Ah. He, 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 he cries out to God in prayer, and he gets his hammer, and he signals his squad, get back to work. I think this, and, and this is me conjecturing, but I, I think the main reason Nehemiah didn't get pulled off the wall is because he actually, ex- he, he, he expected it. Again, that's me conjecturing. It's me looking at the text, and what we've learned about Nehemiah so far is he was ready. He had already done verses 1, 2, and 3. He was expecting. He wasn't expecting all these rival nations to look around and say, let's applaud what they're doing. Isn't that awesome that he would come all the way back from Persia? Man, he's great. He expected they're not going to like this, which is one of the very reasons I think you get pulled off a wall. when opposition comes your way because you don't expect it. Sometimes we live as if we really don't live in a fallen world. That we really live in a fallen creation. Surrounded by fallen people. Even for us as Christians with pieces of fallenness, remaining sin left within us. Maybe mentally you know, oh yeah, Jesus, following Jesus should be tough, should be hard, but functionally, you don't expect it. And let me tell you why I know this is true, because sometimes when an opposition comes your way, your world falls apart. Some of us right now are picking up the pieces of some really hard circumstances, and, and you know that I'm praying for you, you know that we're praying for you. But I love what, and we're going to talk about this next, I love the book Paul Tripp wrote on marriage. Here's the title of his book on marriage. What did you expect? It's a great book. What did you expect by Paul Tripp on marriage? What a great, great book. What did you expect? Did you expect that you pushing back against darkness as a parent, as a mom, as a dad, as an employee, as a grandma, as a grandpa, as a retiree, were you expecting them to pat you on the back and say, you, you know, you're doing great? If you were, then that's why your world crumbles when opposition comes your way. And if we're not careful, we can actually begin to question the character and the integrity of God when things are not going the way. It's like, Lord, I'm out here working for you. Now you owe me this going really easy. And we call that putting God in your debt, where God owes you something. God, I'm doing this for you, so you owe it to me, whether you say it or whether you don't. You function. I function that way sometimes. We do think drinks for God, and if he doesn't make it easy, then we think, God, I thought you wanted me to do your work. And you know what he says? Suffering and pain was actually built into the plan, child. Well, you got to engage him in prayer. And let me tell you why you engage him in prayer. This is what you need to be praying when you're going through it. Ask God to guard your heart from believing lies about him. Ask God to guard your heart from believing lies about him. Very easy to do. You're in a very vulnerable place when you're getting taken out behind the woodshed, it seems like, and just beat to death. You've got to ask God, protect me, God, from my heart thinking things about you that are just not true. 
But we do that with gospel hope, okay? John 16, Jesus says, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let me tell you what Nehemiah did. When he was opposed, he threw himself on the calling and the character of God. So they remain faithful. And, you know, this is what you need to do, friend. You need to memorize the attributes of God. There's about 18 of them in Scripture. You need to memorize the attributes of God so that when you are in a really difficult place in your life, you're thinking about biblical texts and you're thinking about the conclusion those texts give you about this is true about my God. So what I'm feeling right now is nothing more than a feeling. It's like heartburn. It's going to go away. But I've got to stabilize myself in that which I know is true as the jeering and the taunting and the yuck is around us. Now, here's the thing. What happens next? You think, oh man, it's going to get better for him. No, actually, it gets worse. Notice verse 7. And this is expect more opposition. So you expect opposition, and then you engage God in prayer, and then you expect more. That's what you should expect. You should expect more opposition. Expect, pray, keep expecting. Notice 7. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very, would you give me that word? Angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion. Notice how the waves, or the first was jeering, the first was comments. Now it's like, let's take up arms. and Let's go fight them. We're going to get in the way of what they're doing. Notice the opposition is getting stronger, stronger. Sometimes, friends, many of us get pulled off the wall of what God has called us to do, not because we don't expect opposition. In fact, many of us have heard some really good sermons on suffering. We, we, we know our Bible well. We have a, a really alive prayer life. And so it's not the expectation of opposition that gets us off the wall. But what finally gets us off the wall is relentless opposition. If you've ever been through a season, raise your hand if you've ever been through a season of extended opposition. Extended opposition. Like it won't go away. Won't go away. You know when you go through that extended season of opposition that you're going to have to have special grace from God to get through this. There's going to have to be character forging in my life that I've probably never experienced before. It's different than when, you know, you have a little opposition along the way and it's sort of a one-off thing. But even the most mature among us in the faith, relentless opposition will finally get us. There's all kinds of extended opposition in our body right now. There's sicknesses in our body. There's people that have gone to the doctor and they've sought answers and they can't find the answers to the problem and they go back and it's worse and back and it's worse and back and it's worse. Cancer has remained. Unemployment has remained. Separation from spouses remain unchanged. Young children who won't sleep through the night, which means you won't sleep, which means it makes it really tough for you sometimes to emotionally function in what God has called you to do. Friendships are broken, mother-in-law, father-in-law, family, 
extra family relationships are not healthy and it's awkward. We don't even like to get together, but I'm working on it. I thought I forgave her, but why do I think this about her? And I don't want to be around her, but I got to be around all of that. When, when that happens, and it's just like standing here on Lake Erie, and the waves just keep, pow, 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 that will finally take some of us off the wall. Now, when you go through a little bit of stuff, you can kind of grit your teeth and put your big girl, big boy pants on and say, hey, it's going to be tough, but by God's grace, let's do it. But when it keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming, that's what they're experiencing. But do you know what's beautiful, friends? is that in that moment, what God is doing in His sovereignty, I'm not saying specifics because I'm not God, but generally what we know about our God, the reason, one of the reasons that He does that is He is seeking to expose your lack of strength and your own wisdom and your own knowledge and your own ingenuity, and He wants to squash it so you'll stop depending on on it so you can experience deeper levels of grace in him and he can forge deeper character in you as you hold on to his grace and ride this wave out for the glory of God. You know what's beautiful is the Holy Spirit says, I want to use some really sweet graces while I put you in the crucible of pain. Sadly, for many people, it's right when they get there that they throw the towel in and say, I'm out! I'm getting, I, don't like, I don't like what's going on in my marriage. I'll get a new mate. I don't like what's going on at my job, so I'll get a new job. And you just keep going through jobs, going through jobs. You never really look in the mirror and say, maybe God actually wanted to use that job to actually forge some things in me and that I should have gritted it out by the grace of God so that he could form things in me. That if it were always just easy, then I would be a midget saint. Because in order, friends, to build muscle, you've got to have some things torn down. And God uses pain to tear some stuff off of you so that he can build, things, build new things in you. So you ought to praise God when you go through the pain. I'm not, I didn't say praise God for the pain as much as praise God in the midst of the pain and let him do in you what would only happen if you were going through this as opposed to if everything were just fine. So friends, expect more opposition. Don't be surprised. And there's a thousand texts that we could talk about. But when pain remains, don't forget it is actually evidence of God's love for you. When pain remains, it's actually evidence that God loves you. Maybe the Lord would whisper to you right now, just trust me. Quit trying to get rid of this. I got you. God says, I'm holding on to you. You're not holding on to me. Some of the worst thing you could tell someone is just hold on to the Lord. Well, they're like, I'm trying that better thing is to remind them God's grip is really strong on you right now. So when pain remains, remember, God 
demonstrated his love for you most clearly on the cross. Always go back to the cross for the demonstration of the love of God. When everything around you tells you the opposite. Fourth of all, engage God in more prayer. <laughs> Expect opposition? Pray. Expect more opposition? Pray. Notice, and we pray to our God, verse 9, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So, the majority of us, when we're going through things, we tend to spin our wills about how to fix it rather than going to God about it in prayer. I can't tell you how many times that I went into my prayer bench, into my prayer closet, thinking, I know how to do this, I know how to fix this, and if I wouldn't have prayed about it and let God intervene on my erroneous thinking, I would have really done something foolish. And so they pray to our God. God, set a guard of protection around us. And then, as you get back to work, number five, expect more opposition. These waves just keep coming. Expect opposition, pray. Expect opposition, pray. Expect more opposition. In Judah, verse 10, it was said, the strength of those who... Bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now, this is a lament in poetry, by the way. They're, they're, they're beginning to say this to one another. The people psychologically are getting discouraged, like you do and like I do, when the waves just keep coming. It's starting to get them a bit. They're starting to crumble a bit. They're beginning to talk to each other, and they're beginning to say, I don't know if we can do this, but look at verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So notice it's escalated from jeering, mocking, let's go take up arms and fight them, now we're going to kill them. It's pretty serious. At that time, the Jews, now this is their own people, all right? This is the, the people of God, their own friends, their own family members who were supposed to be for them, who were supposed to be encouraging them, who were supposed to be helping them carry this on. Notice what they say. Who lived near them, came from all directions, and said to us, notice, ten times. I won't say it ten times, but you return to us. You must return to us. And so they came, and they said, in light of the pain you're going through, in light of the fact that they're going to kill you, in light of the fact that this is not going as, as, as peaceful as we thought that it would go, quit the work, forget the whole project, let's abandon the mission. You ever had anybody like that in your life? That you're making good progress and God is helping you and, and gracing you and you're moving forward and then sometimes your friends well-meaning maybe well-meaning because they don't want to see you suffer they don't want to see you go through the hard marriage or go through the hard oh i just wish god would send me a mate and i don't want to be single you know bachelor to the rapture so you you begin to discourage them by thinking you're encouraging them so for us as a church i want to tell you something god burdened me with this week from this text I'm burdened because I wonder how we're counseling each other in opposition. Burdened, concerned, alarmed will be too strong. 
Most of you are receiving counsel every week from somebody, mate, roommate, family, church members, people at work. They hear of your situation, and most people are going to offer some kind of word of counsel, right? So I've just been burdened about this. Are we counseling each other well? Since opposition is part of all of our experience, how are we counseling each other? The best illustration of this is Matthew 16. Jesus with his best man, Peter. Notice, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And notice, Peter took him aside. Here's where the council begins. Far be it from you. This will never happen to you. Now, we can give Peter a hard time, but I would think if you were there, and, you're, and now if you're a flighter, you probably wouldn't do this. But for us fighters who are ready to fight, I think we'd probably do the same thing. I think we would like, Jesus, nope. On my watch, it is not happening. That's why Peter tried to cut his head off, and he missed and got his ear. Because he was not going to let Jesus go down like that. Listen to Jesus' response. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, can you imagine this? Peter loved Jesus. He did not want to see Jesus go through pain. And yet the counsel that he gave Jesus, Jesus said was from hell. Peter gave Jesus satanic counsel. And the satanic counsel was, I want to get you out of the pain, Jesus. I don't want you to go through the pain, Jesus. So get out of the pain. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And I have to wonder how many of us have given horrible just want to be real with this, horrible, satanic advice to people because we're just trying to get them out of the pain rather than helping get their eyes Godward, getting their eyes on Him. Your ultimate hope is not for the pain to go away. Did you know that? Your ultimate hope is to get a greater vision of the goodness and the kindness and the love and the mercy of God. So when opposition comes and someone comes to you, and this is one of the questions this week that you at some point got to really think through, are you counseling them in a way that is inclining them to fix their minds and their hope in God? Or are you counseling them to fix their hope on circumstances getting better? This is the problem in the body of Christ. We're always trying to get each other out of pain. I understand pain is not a part of the American dream. And you cannot be affected by that mentality. Now, thankfully, one day pain is going to be gone and we're going to be in the kingdom of God. But for now in this life, God wants to use pain in your life. My burden for us is that we would give Godward counsel that we would counsel each other to hope in the Lord. Sometimes you don't need to give counsel. You need to be quiet. Some of us just need to be quiet and go pray and look at Scripture before we just offer words that are just not Godward. They're manward. And as you do that, finally, endure, number six, endure by God's grace. Expect, 
pray, expect, pray, expect, and endure by God's grace. Notice 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember, notice he lifts their eyes Godward. He lifts their eyes Godward. And by the way, just to say this really fast, you remember Peter told Jesus, avoid the pain and quit, don't go to Jerusalem? Is that not what the Jews just told them? Leave Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. You see how that foreshadowing is there? But notice, Nehemiah doesn't give bad counsel here. He doesn't say abandon the mission. He doesn't say, oh, it's going to go. Don't ever tell someone, oh, the pain's going to go away. You don't know that. You can tell them one day the pain's going to go away in the kingdom of God. But you don't know that. And you're building their hope on things that are just not true and not good and not helpful and ultimately it's going to discourage them. This is why the prosperity gospel has massive problems. This is why teachers and preachers who say that, that God, it's God's will for you to always be happy, um, I'm sorry, always be healthy and always be wealthy, that's a lie. God wants to use pain for His glory and for your good. And Nehemiah says, remember the Lord, remember Him. He's great, He's awesome. And fight, remember and fight, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Now notice 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, verse 16, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of the wall, or coats of the mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole council of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand, notice, and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped on his side as he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place, verse 20, where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, notice, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now, over a dozen times here, Nehemiah mentions their weapons, and they were ready to use them. But nestled in the midst of this whole strategic paragraph, after announcing this kind of trumpet-based alarm system, he told everyone, our God will fight for us. So I want you to think about that. After amassing weapons, getting people in place, setting a guard, organizing shifts, I mean, this thing is organized, Nehemiah then says, God's going to fight for us. Now, it seems like Nehemiah thought he was going to do the fighting, right? And why don't you say God's going to fight for us, but then you get your weapon and you get your old plan laid out. Like, what is it, Nehemiah? Are you, is God fighting for you, or are you going to fight? You got the weapon, is God going to, you understand the dichotomy here. It's, is, is, is God fighting? Yes. Are the people fighting? Yes. So did that mean that God um, is is not involved in their fighting? No, it's this. 
God is giving them, to, giving them to, the grace to fight on earth as he empowers them with the grace and fights for them in a way that only he can. See, Nehemiah's whole narrative, and this is really the whole book of Nehemiah, is an interplay between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Remember back in Nehemiah 2, Artaxerxes sent an entourage with him to protect him. Do you remember? Nehemiah said, God protect us. But, if he, but the thing is, is, then he said yes to the entourage. He said, God protect me, but then what he realized is God actually ordains not just the end of protection, he ordains the means of how he's going to protect you, and the way in which he wanted to protect the people of God is to use these weapons so that the work could go on. So Nehemiah said, God will fight for us. There's multiple examples of this in Scripture. I think about King Hezekiah who was sick and medicine was given to him. He asked God to heal him, and then he took the medicine. So what healed him? Did God heal him or did the medicine heal him? You know the answer? Yes. Yes. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Don't pit them against each other. They are very good friends. And Nehemiah shows that for us here. But in our context, as we close here, what are we fighting for? Well, I, I wrote a few things down here. We're fighting for our sanctification. We're fighting for spiritual growth, healthy marriages, a healthy church, sanctified singles, strong families, gospel-oriented friendships, sexual purity, fiscal responsibility, college degrees, Sabbath rhythms, kindness and love and generosity, sacrificial servants, better theological understanding, victory over addiction, healing in relationships, forgiveness of those who have hurt us, seeking peace with those who only want to do us harm. And friends, the list goes on. In it all, what God is telling us from this chapter is expect opposition as you seek those things. Engage God in prayer when the opposition comes and labor in the grace and the strength that he is supplying. And so when Jesus came, Jesus became this perfect mixture of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus entered our fight. Jesus faced opposition like Nehemiah. He battled through the discouragement. And let me tell you what Jesus did. He picked up a weapon, very unorthodox weapon, called a Roman cross. And he killed death by dying himself and conquering it. It was very unorthodox. But Jesus took the weapon of the cross and he defeated the enemies of God. He defeated the devil. And he defeated the ongoing battle that you and I have with sin. So we can say this verse is true for us right now. Our God will fight for us. And he actually already has fought for us. And he will continue to fight for us. And he's going to give you the grace to not lean on a shovel and ask him to dig a hole. But you're going to get the shovel he's put in your hands. And you're going to work and steward the shovel as you trust God to give you the power to dig the hole that he's called you to dig. Final word of application keep looking Godward as you are laboring Godward. Keep looking Godward. Keep your eyes looking on God as you're laboring down here. Our Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. We're thankful that these things are true and thankful that you are a refuge, Jesus, for us to run to. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a strong tower and that you have invited us, your people, to come to you and find rest. And we're grateful that the day that we came to know you, the day that you saved us, Lord, we tasted and we saw 
your goodness, your grace, your love for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us by your grace to endure the opposition in our lives. Lord, when we think about the, the life of the Apostle Paul, he had much opposition in his life, and, and yet um, we don't want to negate the fact that you may want to take the pain away from us. And we see, Lord, the Apostle Paul instructed us from his own example that three times he asked for the thorn to be taken away, and yet, God, you had something better. And Lord, right now, there are some in our midst who are battling the pain, battling the opposition on an individual basis. And God, I pray that your grace would be abundant in their lives. I pray, God, that you would provide for them, that they would go deeper and deeper in your love for them, that you would sustain them, God, that you, in your sovereign will and sovereign grace, would bring peace into their soul, God, that you would, you would bring change unto their circumstances if that's what brings you glory. And God, if the greater glory is not for the circumstances to change, but for them and for me and for us to actually change in the midst of the circumstances as we look to you, our great God, our awesome God, our sovereign God. Lord, would you fill us with joy, joy, that we would remember all that you've done for us. That we would expect opposition. That we would engage you in prayer. We would expect more opposition. We would engage you in prayer. We would expect more opposition. And Lord, that we would labor, labor for the glory of your good name. We thank you for Jesus, that he took a weapon of a Roman cross and defeated the enemies of God so we can declare our God will fight for us. We thank you that you have and you are. Be strong, Jesus. Be big. And my dear friends today that are up against a tidal wave of opposition. For your glory, for their good, for our good. We pray in the good name of our King, the Lord Jesus. And we all said, can we stand together and respond in singing?